Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Time with Max Contact. This is Sean McIver, your host. For this episode, we give a warm welcome to Adrian Swinscoe. Adrian is the writer of Punk CX and Punk XL. He runs a CX blog and podcast, and he's independent customer experience advisor, speaker, and workshop leader. He's also contributed to Forbes. Adrian, welcome. I normally like to hand over to my guests to do their own introduction. What would you add to that? Nout, actually. Hello. Just great to be here. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it's like, I, I tell you what I'll, I'll say is that it's, I've been in this space for nearly, oh, crumbs, specifically focusing on this space now for nearly 15 years and written, as you say, a bunch of books. I've written actually four books, contributed to Forbes for about 10 years now. I've run a podcast for over 12 years now, which is like my R&D lab in many ways. And it's taken me the longest time to really find a very short way of describing what I do. And then it came to me this year. And it's I describe what I do in using three words. And one is I'm an investigator. I'm also an agitator. And I'm also an instigator of better outcomes in that whole service and experience space. And what I mean by that is that when I talk about investigation, I just I do my own research and writing and all these different thinking out loud in many ways. And the agitation is more around advocacy and trying to shake the tree and kind of like urge people to do kind of better things and different things and think differently and not just do paid by numbers, as it were. And then the final one is the instigation is that I get asked by some people to help them address, manage, navigate, and see their way through better, a path towards better kind of outcomes. So that's my three words. Okay. So my first question to you then, what's been your journey to arriving at those three words? How did you get here at those three words within the context of Punk CX? Oh, crumbs. So my, I don't really have a career. I don't really describe myself as having a career. I've had a bit of a journey because I've done a bunch of different things. So I'm a, uh, my quick background is my background is I'm a trained economist and a trained teacher. I've done both at the early, through the early part of my work journey. Flirted with the idea of becoming a professional economist, but that meant taking a PhD. Got to the threshold of that, got offers and was able to possibly, you know, the opportunity to go and do that. Then decided that I didn't think, I didn't want to be a poor student for another five years. And so I decided against that. Kind of took, um, in modern parlance, I then pivoted, as it were, and took an MBA and then worked for a couple of corporates doing corporate strategy, kind of new venture development, business development, that type of stuff. Did that for a few years. Then as part of a restructuring, I had the opportunity, well, I was, I was offered, my unit got downsized and I was given the opportunity of, here's an envelope on your signar on your way, or here's an operational job. And I was a bit like, I don't really fancy the, what the operational job that was on offer. So I decided to make the jump. And that was back in 2004. And then for a few years, but three, four years after that, I did a bunch of different things of so various sort of independent consultancy stuff with on my own and with different people. Some of it was just standard consultancy stuff. Some of it was sort of at risk 
kind of almost entrepreneurial nature, nearly bought a steel company. What can I tell you? <laughs> That's a different story. And then around about so 2007, 2008, felt like I liked the idea of operating independently. And I could see the way that the market was developing. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I need to develop this sort of digital footprint. So it's like a what I call, which would allow me to establish trust at a distance. So to help people to think about and understand kind of what I think, how I do how I do things and how I approach things. And so I started my own website, my own blog, and started writing about stuff. Started writing about strategy, business development, marketing, that type of stuff. Very boring. Very quickly it got. And then I thought, actually, you know what? I need to focus on something that I actually care about or I don't like and I want to change. And the thing that struck me after a bit of navel gazing was that I don't like bad service. I really don't. And that does make me different to anybody else. It just grates for me because having built things, developed things that had both customer and employee value at their hearts, it always frustrated me that organizations often get in the way of their people doing a good job, whether that's process or policy or technology or you know whatever it might be. And so I thought, actually, I'm going to start exploring this and looking for clues, knowing that there's not one size fits all, but just looking for different ways of doing things. And that just led me to start writing about service and experience. Well, at that time, it was more just service, and this expanded into experience. And that was back in... Started in 2008, 2009, and we are four books, 10 years worth of Forbes columns, kind of a 12-year-old podcast, and so on and so forth. And I'm only just scratching the surface. So that's where I get to the emergence of these three words, as it were. It's been a long time. It's like a bit like those, you know, they talk about the slow movements. I'm sometimes quite slow in realizing things. I can be really quick sometimes, but sometimes when it comes to my own self, it's like, ah, it's quite slow. So he goes, what's your proposition? I'm like, I I fix stuff. I see stuff. I explore stuff. I do stuff. But that's the way that I'm sort of playing around with it right now. So that's a long answer to a short question. I hope that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Thank you very much. And I really like kind of the fact that you took the time to kind of describe the journey. There was a lot in there. And I have to follow it up with a comment around music. Uh-huh. And what made you think of the music analogy? How did you land on the music analogy in particular? Lots of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected answer, number 314. <laughs> there you go. So that was the idea around punk music was, it was born out of a conversation I had with in the Basket Makers pub with a friend of, in Brighton, in the, with a friend of mine, Oshin, a number of years ago. And we're both in that sort of experience space and we were talking about it and both enthused about the level of investment and excitement and activity that was going on. But then after a few pints, I blurted out, I'm sort of frustrated with the lack of significant improvement we're seeing. And then I blurted out further, after, probably after another pint, it's like, I wish somebody would do something a bit more punk with this. Now, I'm a fan of punk music. Now, not old enough to be an original punk, but I'm more of a post-punk sort of thing. My first formative musical genre was New Wave Ska. So I am specials and selectors, selector kind of boy, kind of like through and through. But that whole, but they were informed by kind of punk music. And then the follow-on from that, the, the post-punk era, is that's kind of my space. But here's the thing. After that conversation, I promptly forgot that insight. I think drunks might call it a moment of clarity, but I promptly forgot it. 
But it did pop back into my head a, a few months later and I started thinking about it. And I started thinking about punk music and I started thinking about how it had come about. And it struck me that punk music exploded out of the back of progressive rock in the 1970s. Now, progressive rock, is, and I apologize to anybody who's listening that might be a prog rock fan, but whilst it was popular, it was also viewed as being overly elaborate, self-indulgent, quite exclusive, not really interested in the fans, more interested in its own virtuosity than anything else. And you didn't, and it almost required a PhD in music to, to be able to participate. And punk was like, yeah, bugger that. Anybody can pick up a guitar or a set of drumsticks or a mic or whatever and make a band, a former band, and then just have a go. And that was the thing that struck me is that punk was about this DIY, democratic, impact-driven, heart and emotion sort of like nature. And it struck me that there's parallels between that sort of evolution and where we are in service and experience. And it struck me that actually the service and experience space as it's evolved over the last sort of 10, 15 years, it started to exhibit a lot of the same sort of characteristics as prog rock did in the 1970s. Like it's overly elaborate, overly codified, certified benchmark framework, all these different things. Actually, more, most importantly, it's probably just like prog rock, becoming more interested in itself than its constituents, i.e. customers and the people that we're here to serve. And that was the that was then the hypothesis behind the idea of Punk CX was, well, if that's true, i.e. is customer experience exhibiting some of the same characteristics as Prog Rock, then what would a punk version of CX look like? And so I wrote a book, it looks like that, and the follow-up. The thing about it is like it's inspired by punk music, but it's also inspired by punk fanzines. And so in true punk style, when I was thinking about writing the book, I was thinking about nobody needs to see 50,000 words of black ink or white paper and we have to do something which it has more of an impact and so we played around with the idea and think well actually punk never explained itself it just told people what it thought it's up to you to pick the bones out of it and i thought that's what we can do with the book is just make something that's short pithy punchy possibly a little bit profane in, in places provocative in others and was all about challenging people in their thinking and their doing to produce these better outcomes. And so that's where we got to with that. And it was, com it actually ended up, I was like, I'm not sure this is going to work, but hey, it's an art project. Let's see what happens. It's, it's landed and it resonates with people and it's super cool. And it's like, it's become this completely accidental branding sort of thing, which is brilliant. And so, yeah, long live Punk CX. Amazing. Now, I have an admission to make at this point. I grew up on Bad Religion, Blink-182, NoFX, Green Day. Uh, punk is very much kind of one of the things that I'm a huge fan of. I must say, Bad Religion is one of my favorite bands. Yes! Fugazi is one of my others because they're almost like poles apart, completely different, but beautiful in their own kind of way that they approach things. Yes. And... In preparation for this conversation, I was doing some kind of, not soul searching, that sounds perhaps a bit too far, but I was doing some reading and I, came, I found like the ethos behind punk includes some really important core principles, things like creativity, authenticity, risk-taking, yep. empowerment, adaptability. 
So if we translate those core principles, however you choose to see them, which of those core principles as you define them do you see as being the biggest challenge to take on within this industry? Well, I think I would paraphrase, uh, try and quote, but possibly paraphrase Henry Rollins when he was asked about how to define punk. For anybody that doesn't know, Henry Rollins, this is a bit of a punk lore, as it were. He is a childhood friend of Ian Mackay of Minor Threat and Fugazi fame, but also the founder and leader of Discord Records on the East Coast. And Henry Rollins then went, got spotted by Black Flag and asked to kind of like to be the lead singer of Black Flag and became this kind of big name in the whole punk scene. And Henry Rollins is, I've seen Henry Rollins kind of play with Black Flag and it's like, he is a scary dude. And so when he speaks, you listen. And so he was asked to define what punk is. And he said, punk is question everything. That's it. And I think that's the point is like, yes, there's received wisdom. You're like going, yeah, but from who and why and for how long? And does it make sense? And does it matter? And does it work now? And so the approach is, is that for me, it's like, and what I'm trying to do with the whole Punk CX thing, and I do it in my own podcast, is I ask people, and I have done for the last few years, to define what Punk CX means for them in one or two words. And over the course of the last few years, I've collected nearly 180 different words and phrases to describe it. Because this is the beauty of Punk, is that it's such a broad church. And to your point, it's about taking risk about creativity it's about inclusiveness it's about daring to be different it's about doing things that are counterintuitive it's thing but in you boil it all down when it comes to as henry rollins said it's about questioning everything why does it need to be like that can it not be any better and it's about that agitation for understanding what you want to try and do but then agitating for that and making sure that you're working on the right path just because somebody tells you this is the way that it's done it's like going well so can it be done better Absolutely. I like that. I really like that. And the agitation piece, uh, the idea of kind of distilling everything down, but then shaking it up again. I really like that. I think that lands very well with me. I'm going to pivot ever so slightly, but it kind of ties across and I'm pivoting because it's made me think of it. You also wrote a book called How to Wow. Yes. And talk about disruptive. I did a mini high five when I saw you call out the interruptions that we all experience within the your section on don't interrupt customers. Of the 68 strategies listed, is there a particularly creative example of a business, quote, effortlessly making every customer experience amazing, unquote, that you would be able to share? But one that really made you sit back and go, wow, that's punk. Oh, crumbs. Well, then, so How to Wow came out in 2016, and so it was well before the whole sort of punk thing. And I think the thing about where they align, however, is how to I was is is a book and it's but it's not about wow service, but it is. And I'll explain why. Because I had a bit of a wrestling match with my publisher about the book at the time. And I was a bit like, Yeah, I don't really like the title. Because it's not about all fancy bells and whistles and things. This is because the truth is, yes, we're all thinking about trying to deliver sort of this wow service. But actually, wow service is not what you think. Actually, wow service is not about the small piece of chocolate on your kind of pillow when you go to a hotel, because it's a nice touch. But if the bathroom's a mess and it's smelly, then it's for naught. 
And I think that's the thing that where Wow Service shares the the understanding that it shares with kind of Punk CX is that it's back to basics. It's do the basics brilliantly. And if you don't do that, then you've got nothing. And actually the basics, whether that is fast response times, quick resolution, sort of like being empathetic, being understanding, listening and responding, all of these different things, but doing it in a consistent and reliable manner, that's the bedrock on which we build relationships, even in our own lives. And that's the thing where you uh, gives you the ability to build on these other things, but only if you virtually only if you have these things in place. A lot of people try and do these nice fancy things without having the foundations in place. It's a bit like putting a big fancy new extension on your house when you've got crappy foundations. The only thing that's going to happen is going to like sink into the garden and can lean like some ancient piece of architecture in Pisa in Italy. So I think that's the where it does share. There's a shared philosophy in that. And I think the problem with that, and this is a challenge that still that with all of that, is that one of the biggest challenges to improvements in service and experience is, is how we change ourselves and how we kind of think about things. Because it's all very well, we get caught up, we're like magpies, we go like, oh, the latest thing, and oh, the latest thing. And then it goes off and, and we go off and do that. And we forget about the basics because the basics are one, hard work, take a bit of time, not very sexy. But despite that, they're the things that matter to our customers. And particularly from a psychological perspective, that's the stuff that builds trust and engagement and reliability and credibility and then and loyalty and all these different sort of things. And so we end up having to almost like manage how we view things is not be the magpie, but be the person of the organization that is diligent in their approach and is committed and is steadfast in their approach because it matters to them in a deep sort of way. It's like delivering those better outcomes is, is fundamentally important to them. And they're willing to do the hard work and the hard yards. And it is dirty and ugly and difficult and all these different things. And I think that for me, that becomes a difference is that sometimes punk, our punk approach to services, you might not notice it. It just shows up. It just happens. And you look at it and go, that's brilliant. I love it. But in the current competitive and climate and sort of environment, when we look at and there was and we see data that says that service and experience standards are sliding, the people that show up and do the basics well and do them brilliantly and consistently are the ones that are these shining lights, the the beacons that we gravitate to. So trying to think how best to phrase this. How does a business that's out there right now look at these other businesses that are these beacons? And how do they embrace that punk aspect and start going on that journey themselves? And I don't mean to trivialize this when I ask the follow-up, which is, is it as simple as questioning everything? Well, possibly not. And I simplify it just to make it, I guess, easy to receive. But... If you dismiss it as simplistic, then I don't think you're necessarily taking the whole point seriously. Now, I'll give you an example. I think about the contact center space right now. And it seems to me there was a piece of research that was done, came out from Deloitte about the state of the contact center globally, sort of, I think it was March of this year. Now, I throw a bit of weight behind that because it's like there, it's a big survey and you think, okay, that's fine. So here's the interesting thing. Only 7% of the people that were surveyed, these were agents and leaders within contact centers, said that they'd actually connected up all of their channels together. 
that they'd achieved that omni-channel connection, right? 7%. And yet, the same group of people were talking about being under pressure from an investment perspective, wanted to save costs and, and, and so forth, but still had plans to add more channels to their mix. Now, think about this. When we think about that, we go, oh, okay, so you're under pressure, you're not getting more budget, you haven't achieved any of this connection, there's all this friction within their system that's kind of holding up your, frustrating your customers and making it difficult for your employees going to do, and yet you're going to add more channels. So hang on. What that means is you're going to, you're asking yourself to do more with the same, which effectively di- means that you're basically diluting the amount of resources that you're pointing at each specific channel. Like, well, what? Why? I mean, maybe a different thing would be to start to question the assumptions like, going, this is not sustainable. And if it's not sustainable, what can we do to make it more sustainable? Now, if that means we end up having to simplify things and to this is with the question everything, it's like maybe the question is it's like, hmm, should I be adding more channels? Or should I be actually reducing my channels to focus resources to drive better outcomes? So here's an example. And these are examples that are hiding in plain sight. How many channels does Amazon serve its customers over? Basically one. Two. The website and the app, right? And if you want anything decent or any service or anything from them, what has to happen when you're kind of on those two kind of like uh, properties, you have to log in. And then you get this panoply of different sort of uh, kind of options where it could be chat or email and or you can dig around and you can find their phone number and they'll answer all this sort of stuff. But when they do, they know exactly who you are and what and all the history and everything else. Right. So they've got all that connected, but they're controlling the kind of entry points, because what they're doing is they're setting out their stall. And this is the kind of, the you know, you could somebody could say to you, oh, but that's Amazon. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, but they, they've, so they've always done it that way. And they're brave in the setting their stall because what I think what they do is they understand one thing. It's a very human thing, whereas we know that we'll, we will pay for better service and a better experience, but we'll also travel for a better service and a better experience, right? This happens in the physical world. But what they've said, well, we know this, but actually, we know it's probably going to say the same is true in the digital world as well. So if we set our stall, it says, you'll get great here rather than average or not existent over here. Would you be willing to travel to here? You're like, yeah, of course. So then you end up getting to this kind of point where you have to question this idea. Of, there's this, this idea was like, we have to be everywhere where our customers are at. I'm like going, hmm, do you really? Or do you just need to signpost them? And I think that's an interesting one. I think I'm going to piggyback off the back of that conceptually and jump in with the aspect of it started out with being actually let's meet our customers where they are. Let's Mm -hmm. have web chat. Let's offer SMS. Let's offer Facebook, WhatsApp, TikTok, whatever the platform might be. And then that kind of a transitioned around to, oh, actually, my users can handle more than one web chat at a time. There's an efficiency there. Yeah, And I think if we overlay that, and in some cases now you can't find a telephone number for a company to actually call them, it's buried so deep. And if you overlay that over what you've just been saying, it actually the two things kind of, I could see that there's an alignment there. If you're not getting the same service through one channel than you are from another, then of course you're going to choose the one that is the better one for you. Then why invest the money in the channel that's not giving the customer experience you expect? And so I think it's just that I'm not saying that people shouldn't 
have all these channels in play and have them all connected and try and take a bit of a conversational approach where you pull it all in, it's all in that conversational sort of like stream, whether it's email or messaging or like a Facebook kind of thread or a Twitter or DM sort of conversation, all of this, that can all be done. But what I'm saying is that, again, it goes back to what I was kind of alluded to a little bit earlier on. There's a, my favorite title of one of the tracks in Punk CX is the first one where I ask the question, are you an artist or are you just coloring in? And I think people ask themselves that. And when you're adding all these different sort of things, you're coloring in because you're basically doing the same thing as everybody else, expecting to create art. Well, that's not how art is created. Art is about doing something different that speaks to you and speaks to the people that you engage with. It requires difference. And so I just think there's too many people that are painting by numbers. And they're not being brave enough to think about, okay, what's this art? What's our art that we're, that we're trying to create? What are the brave choices that we're making? How are we, to your point earlier, what risks are we taking? What choices are we making that's going to help us and help our customers at the same time? I'm aware of time. And there's a topic that I want to cover, which, which would be interesting to see where it goes with this one. But through the lens of what we've just talked about, you wrote recently that, When it comes to customer experience transformation, technology isn't the problem. But how important is it? And off the back of that, Dot, is AI punk? Well, I think it could be. So so let me answer the first one first. Is technology important? Yes, I think it is. It's absolutely a fundamental kind of lever in terms of the delivery of a lot of these kind of things. But I do think that... All of the capability that we need is, I think, is right now is all there, and I think the implementation there of it thereof is pretty well known and understood. The thing that I'm sort of learning and hearing is that the problem is, is how do we change our organizations? How do we transform our organizations? How do we get them to the point where they're ready to accept all these different things? And I think for me, a lot of that comes when you drill into that. A lot of that comes back from comes back to rather is that many organizations don't really understand what they're building towards. Like They say they've got a vision. You ask them what their vision is, and they go, nah, nah, nah. and it's like this kind of like one-sentence assemblage of like a five or six different sort of buzzwords that are all tacked together in a slightly different order to kind of their neighbor. And you look at it and go like, that doesn't tell me anything. And so I don't think organizations go far enough in thinking about the vision of the the service and experience that they want to deliver. They haven't looked at it from where they are now to what they want it to be and actually really describe it in detail about what it is they want their customers to get, to feel, to receive, and all these different things. And also what it's going to take to deliver that from all the different component parts of the business. Now, when you do that, then people can start to relate to that and think about, well, okay, what is it going to take from me and my team in order to deliver to that? What things need to be put in place? Then you get there's all that you get much better coordination and alignment. At the same time, when you can do that, you can start to align it to business and corporate objectives and still restart driving and focusing, driving down and focusing in your activity on delivering that, the truly essential thing, which is delivering ROI on your efforts. Because otherwise it's just fancy stuff. And this is the thing that the experience industry hasn't really kind of hasn't really done very well is to understand how they be making commercial sense and being commercially relevant into the business. Then the contact center understands this because they live it every kind of day because they're under cost pressures. 
But I do think the contact center can actually could play a better role of advocating for itself, could be braver around pitching its own value and its future value and what it could do. And that's something I've talked about that, you know, that before. But when you build all of that into it, as I say, the whole AI, I mean, for me, I think AI shmei, because AI itself is not a helpful term because there's all sorts of different types of artificial intelligence. And the new kid on the block is generative AI. Now, is it punk? No, it's a tool. It's not the solution. It's a tool. And it has to be led by, can it help facilitate and drive and accelerate and enable your vision about what you want to achieve and the things that you want to deliver for your customer? Yeah, for sure. It can take out, uh, make things so much kind of easier in terms of access of information, speeding things up, taking out a lot of the manual stuff, both inside and outside in you know, an organization from both a customer and an employee's perspective. So yeah, and it can be transformative, but it's not the end in of itself. And I think that's the point. That has to be driven by us. When generative AI and other kind of variations of artificial intelligence in line with other things like automation, so you can figure out kind of how to make things smoother and quicker and more efficient and reduce errors and all that sort of stuff. I think that's, it's brilliant, but it has to feed into a broader picture. And this is the thing. Again, I come back to the, the, one of the biggest blockers in all of this type of work is not the technology, it's ourselves. I think about the kind of the music analogy is like going, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that can learn how to play a musical instrument. It doesn't mean say they're going to make be a great musician or a great band member, right? And there's, of all the bands that have been truly successful and have changed and moved the world, there's millions of others that haven't. So I guess to look forward then, and to kind of, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. It's really frustrating. I feel like we need to have an episode two at some point. Well, let's do it. Yeah. But my next question to kind of close the loop on this then is, what do we see as being the future of CX? How will CX evolve in the coming years? Or to put it in another way, what would the album title be of the next CX movement in the terms of the punk space? I'd call it Minority Report. Okay. Because if I think about the... Um, now, Minority Report is a film. It takes a slightly dystopian view of things. But if you take the dystopia out of it slightly... And actually think about kind of what is happening in in terms of the, where the technology is and allow it's there's these predictive elements and that somebody's not necessarily respond it well Tom Cruise is a central catcher is not necessarily and other folks other operators like him are not really responding to things kind of in the moment they're being able to orchestrate stuff and rely on the technology to help them kind of do things now I think that's where particularly the way that the arc that we're going to develop along is that we'll use the technology to try and maximize out the self-service opportunities. And I think that's fair enough. But I think there's always going to be a role for people. But our challenge is how do we, and this is something I've been thinking about and talking about quite a lot recently and over the last couple of years, is that we have to think about the agent experience, not the employee experience, because the employee experience gets dominated by HR and payroll and time off and performance reviews and all these different things when it comes to technology and stuff. But we have to think about the agent experience and the people that are interacting with their customers in sort of real time or in an asynchronous fashion. And we have to think about it with the same level of sophistication, I believe, 
that we're thinking about the customer experience, i.e. what's predictive, what's proactive, what's self-service, and so on and so forth, such that with through the lens of how do we operationalize excellence in the moment? I think so all the bits are there, we just need to think about it in a way that that makes sense. And so that will mean that the role of the agent then changes. But then you get into a bigger sort of like conversation where you think about, well, what you're asking that person to do is they're becoming this multi-skilled, multi-talented kind of person. But then you think about, you add in and go like, well, if that person is doing all that and it's a really valuable role and playing a really valuable role in the organization in terms of engagement and loyalty and all these different things, then you have to ask yourself, does that fit with paying somebody at the level that they're currently getting paid, which sometimes is minimum wage plus something, or maybe a slightly more than that. And I think that all starts to change when you start to think about the contact center is this live and ever-burgeoning real-time data source and how you can use it and loop it back into the broader business. So imagine this. Imagine there's you've got all that fixed. And imagine this customer tries to has a problem and tries to self-serve, can't quite figure it out. It's a bit of a naughty problem. They call in. They're in AQ. You pick up Sean picks up the phone and goes, Hey, how can I help you? Blah, blah. And then you're there, you've got access to all these systems. You don't have to escalate and everything else. Everything's pushed to the front. You're enabled and supported and kind of like with all that sort of stuff. You're there to focus on the conversation because all the tools and access and systems and things are in place to help you solve that kind of problem in that moment. You're able to do it really quick and easy. Thanks very much. Da-da-da. Sort that out. You're like going, brilliant. And Sean says, well, Adrian, that's all sorted for you now. But before you go, do you have like 20 seconds for me to ask a couple of questions that will help us? We're not going to push you to a survey that's going to help us better serve you in future. And you're like going, sure, I've got pleasant resolution. Yeah, I can do that. So Sean then goes and asks Adrian, Sean asks him, Question one, question two, maybe question three, very quick ones. And it's more about this idea, this sort of almost a psychographical input that you need, that zero party data that you need that is going to be help you understand the why behind the buy, as it were. And you take that data because you've got this real time speech to text analytics data where you take all the data, you understand using the artificial intelligence to parse out all that data, to feed it all the way back through into your one-to-one sort of decisioning hub, which is aligned with your CRM, which is going to automatically update in real time, which is going to change the way that you as an, an organization, as a brand, engage with that customer kind of going forward about what they like and what they don't like. Now that's the loop. And all the component parts are sort of in place, not quite in place, but they're sort of in place. That's where I think it's kind of going where we think about that, we start thinking about engagement and contacts and service and experience in a truly holistic kind of manner, in a joined up manner. I think that's the art of the possible right now. And I think it's something that many people should be striving for because that'd just be super cool. Agreed. What, what The idea of using the huge quantity of data that's available to industry, to contact center, to individuals, to users about customers, problems, and solutions, and feeding that dynamically and using that to inform as a data-led decision-making process to make sure that you're delivering customer excellence. But to do it in a way that which is also forward-looking as well, because you're capturing the moment. So it's not about, you change it away from being now we need to kind of, so the, the battle you have to fight is that, oh, we need to make sure we manage our average handle time. You're like, going, ah, 
No, think about it differently. Question everything. Why are we thinking about this? Is it an opportunity on a positive resolution to maybe do something different? And can we loop that in? Can we make that kind of work? And what's something that is rescued from being something that's going to get stuck in a survey, something sometimes where nobody's going to respond to it. I think it's just a different way of thinking about it, a different way of doing it. And I think that it's all there. And I'm not saying that people should do it, but it's something I think they should be thinking about, thinking about what they can do differently in order to improve those kind of outcomes. Amazing. Unfortunately, that is us run out of time for this particular episode. Adrian Swinskill, what an incredible conversation. Thank you ever so much for your time today. And hopefully, I would really like to get the opportunity to have another conversation with you in future. Absolutely guaranteed, 100%. I love it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time then. Yeah, I will Yeah, hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you. Nice one. Thank you. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, thanks for listening.